Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Exploring Diversity Concepts in Engineering Education. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Natasha Trellinger-Boswell, who is an assistant professor of teaching in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of California, Irvine. Her research focuses on many elements of teaching, pathways to teaching careers, teaching experiences from both the students' and instructors' perspectives, and ways to make teaching more inclusive of diverse students. Natasha, it's wonderful to have you here with us as part of this podcast series. I actually think it will be one of our first conversations that um, talks about diversity, teaching, and engineering disciplines. And I would like to start by reading one of your quotes that's really inspired me, where you're saying that my motivation for centering my teaching and research missions on diversity and inclusion efforts in STEM education is simple. I want the next generation of STEM professionals to not need to consume their minds with the burden of exclusion. And you continue saying that I wish for the next generation to be able to think about solving STEM problems to free their minds from thoughts of needing to prove their abilities when others doubt their place and simply think about the science, the engineering, the next invention, a more beautiful future. So I really, really love this sayings and I think they kind of help us to frame our conversation. And maybe the first question, if we can start off, if you don't mind sharing some of your background with our audience and some of your research interest as well. Yeah, well, thank you again for having me here on your podcast. This is really exciting. Yeah, so a little bit about me. I did my undergraduate work in aerospace engineering at Syracuse University. From there, well, I guess when I was at Syracuse, I did something called academic excellence workshops, which were these supplemental instruction workshops. And I was a student that took them. So if you were taking a class like calculus or statics, you could take a supplemental instruction where you got to meet with some other students once a week with upper level engineering student that had taken the class before and work with them once a week for a couple of hours. And I really liked being a student in that. And I applied to be a facilitator the next year. And I did that throughout my time as an undergrad. And that was really my favorite thing about my undergraduate career. I really liked teaching and I thought, wow, I really want to be a professor. I admired a lot of my professors and thought that would be a really cool pathway. And I was a little discouraged when I discovered that I would probably need to get a PhD because I hadn't really, um, I didn't naturally think about, you know, changing the variables related to my engineering projects. Like one of my, my professors said, you know, now that you've done this project, what what are you curious about? Are you curious about, you know, how would this change if the velocity of the fluid changed or if you change the dimension of this part of the, the structure? And I just remembered thinking that that's just like not really what I wanted to spend all my time thinking about. Um, and so that was when I really started thinking, oh, gosh, I want to be a professor, but how can I maybe get to that point without um, studying aerospace engineering for a PhD? And that was when I learned about engineering education. And it was just such a, from the beginning, the community engineering education was really, really welcoming. And I felt like it was the, you know, it was the right place for me where I could do the research that, that was interesting enough, even though I remember thinking, I don't think I like research, but that I needed to do a PhD in order to become a professor. And so that was why I ended up going and getting my PhD. And then I 
figured out that I could research teaching because teaching was really what I was most interested in. And that's what I ended up doing and focusing my dissertation on um, pathways of, of professors that went into teaching focused careers. And that was really my my big um, interest, and it still is a big interest. And so since now I've been at UC Irvine, I'm here in a professor of teaching position, which is a teaching-focused position, although I'm at an R1 institution, so most of my colleagues are not teaching-focused, but it was like just the ideal job. I remember seeing it thinking, this is exactly what I wanted, um, get to teach engineering while also continuing to do my engineering education research. And so my research is still around um, uh, teaching pathways, graduate student preparation for faculty careers. Um, and it's really expanded, though. Now at UCI, we're a Hispanic-serving institution and a um, Asian-American and Pacific Islander-serving institution. And so we have quite a diverse student body, which I think is awesome. And so that's been a big inspiration for a lot of my my current work where looking at how can we really help go from being a Hispanic serving institution to um, really making sure that we're doing the serving part, not just that we happen to have a lot of students from these backgrounds, but that we're really supporting them and making our classrooms and our experiences um, for them instead of that they just happen to be here. And so um, yeah, so a lot of my work is now looking at teaching practices that might support students of various backgrounds, minority statuses. And so that's that's kind of where I've I've gone since being here at UC Irvine. So thank you. <laughs> sure, that was very interesting. I think of all our participants, you're the first one we've had that has had such a direct connection between their research and what they actually do for work. So for our listeners, can you talk a little bit more about how you're able to incorporate how you perform research, what types of questions you're asking and what you're finding in your actual role as a professor of teaching? Yeah, yeah. So that's something I really like about my role is that I feel like I can do a lot of I can really align the two, the the teaching that I'm doing and my research. Um, that's not always true, but it's it's often true. So that's been really exciting. And so there's still some of my work that I that I do that's really um, that's not classroom based. That's a little further removed where I'm asking about people. I ask about people's experiences in the classroom, but not necessarily I'm not necessarily observing classrooms or things like that. But one of the things that UC Irvine has done, um, it's been it's been an exciting time to be here because I think there's been a big movement towards um, more research on teaching and educational research as a whole. So the professor of teaching series is one thing that I'm actually researching with another group of, of people here at UC Irvine and at the, the University of California more generally. There, this, it's not a new position, but it's, it kind of changed in terms of what the expectations are. So early on, it was a tenure track equivalent position for people that wanted to focus their careers on teaching. Um, and they only did teaching and they did service, but it's a permanent position. But recently, I think within like the last 10 years or so, it started shifting to, well, if we really wanted these people to be professors, then we need they need to have some sort of scholarship or creative activity component. And so that started getting emphasized more. And so with that, um, our vice chancellor um, or vice provost for teaching and learning decided, you know, we should try to make the institutional, you know, support these people so that they can do this kind of work. And so one of the things that happened was we created 
or they created a, a an IRB, like a blanket IRB for educational effectiveness that allowed people to collect data from their classrooms um, and use that pretty, pretty readily in research questions. And so it's a really a way for a lot of people to be encouraged to do this kind of work of saying, well, what kind of questions might you have and how are your students performing? Um, so there's been a lot of effort making institutional data accessible to, to uh, faculty so that they can um, see, you know, what, how are things going in their classroom? We have dashboards where we can look at, you know, who's in our classroom. It doesn't give us specifics, but broad things like how many first generation students do you have? How many students from um, low socioeconomic status households? How many uh, students from various demographics? And so you, you just have an idea of who's in your classroom. And so that kind of data sharing accessibility has been really has been really exciting that we um, have access to it. We're part of a, a group called Seismic, which um, is a similar effort where it's it's about creating lots of different um, research across lots of different institutions and collecting lots of data so we can see how things are going at different contexts. So, for example, one of those projects is looking at test anxiety. And so the same survey was given in you know, a ton of different classrooms, and then we could look at how do students perform and things like that. And so um, I like that we have that community here at UC Irvine. We are encouraged to do that kind of work. And so that's some of my work. And, and what's nice about that is often really something accessible for, for students that are interested in getting into engineering education work. And so since I don't have um, an engineering education department or program here at at UCI, I do have students that want to do this kind of work. I always introduce the field and my work to my students in my classes. And so I get students that are interested. And, and so it's a nice way to, to let students be introduced to the field of, well, are you, what sort of things do students say in response to this type of assignment or like that sort of thing? So for example, one of the, one of the pieces that, that I wanted to talk about today was, that I've been in, trying to integrate diversity assignments into my classrooms. And it all started a couple of years ago when I was at ASE and Donna Riley was giving this amazing, uh, it was part of a panel, but the whole panel was fantastic. But what, what Donna Riley said really stuck with me and uh, she was saying, we're all teaching diversity in our classrooms. And I remember thinking, no, I'm not. <laughs> and that was her point, right? Was that the silence speaks a lot. It says a lot. And so um, ever since that keynote, um, presentation that I saw, I thought, wow, I really need to do something in my classroom. And so that was when I designed an activity in my classroom. And I worked through this with you know, my my friends. I have a lot of friends that did PhDs at Purdue Engineering Education. We still talk every other week. And I remember saying, if asking if they had any, any ideas. And we came up with this idea that product diversity was a way to kind of introduce students to these ideas about who are we designing for and who's excluded. And so I asked students to find an example of a product that did not consider diversity, that excluded some people and to write about it. So the example I gave in the class was that we only recently had a female crash test dummy introduced into the crash testing world and um, which is shocking. And so women and people that are smaller statures or smaller builds um, are at more risk when they travel in cars because the crash test ratings are all designed for the standard male, which is just often taller and, and has a different physical build. And so that was something that I found really shocking that we like, you know, that women and I'm, I'm pretty short. And so I was like, wow, I'm 
I'm at more risk, right, being in, in cars. And, and so that's the example I gave. And then I asked students to find examples. And with that, I so I had a student I was interested in doing some work with me. And he analyzed the the responses. What did students come up with? What examples did they give? And what I found was just there were so many really great examples and things that students were were finding. And um, and it was encouraging because students started saying, well, this is not right. Right. Like some examples are like voice recognition software or facial recognition software that doesn't work for certain people. Um, certain skin tones. There's soap dispensers that won't dispense soap for people with dark skin, right? And they get really frustrated when they see these products not including all people or making some people feel really awful. And so this is exciting to me that they start seeing that diversity is an important thing that they also need to think about. And my big message here, what I've really learned is like, I can learn so much from my students because they're thinking about the world in new ways. And and so I was really excited to see all of the ideas that they came up with and the examples that they had of ways that engineering can be more inclusive. So being able to collect data in my classroom and then having students that are interested um, in engineering education, you know, have access to data sets pretty readily has been a really cool thing to be able to do. I'm also interested in some engineering colleges, greater STEM instructors who never really thought about this and they hear in many different places through conferences and workshops, etc., that they need to start thinking about diversity. What might be one or two first things, steps they can take to start figuring out how they can start integrating it and addressing this topic in their classes? I think that's a great question. And I think a really good point is often you can be it can be so overwhelming. And that's how I feel a lot of times, too. It's like, well, where do I even start? Right. It can be really overwhelming. The way that I introduce this assignment to my class is I assign weekly homework. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people in engineering do that as well. And what I what I ended up doing was I started assigning weekly what I call application activities. And so these can change with every time I offer a class. But it's just. Um, I, it's something that I want to, them to think about, and then I usually have them write some sort of paragraph length reflection. And so this product diversity assignment is one of those weekly application activities. It doesn't even have to be every week, right? I think it could be something where you say, okay, this week's homework has one extra question that's not, you know, a textbook problem where I want you to look up an example of a product related to this field or just in engineering in general. Um, that, you know, doesn't necessarily include everyone, right? And how does that affect people? So that was all I did, right? I just had that one assignment and then they had to write a paragraph response. And then what I do in class is I take about five minutes where I, I say, share with the people around you what was the product that you found um, and just share, you know, hear what everyone else found. And that way they hear a couple more examples. Um, and and so that's, that's how I've integrated that. Um, since then, I've personally been trying to make it a bigger part of my class. So it's not just this add on, but I'm still working on that, trying to figure out exactly how I want to do that. 
I've added a second application activity in some of my classes. One of them is to look up, you know, a job that they're interested in in engineering and and then think about the field that that's in and look up the demographics of that company. Right. So if you're like, oh, I really want to work at NASA, which a ton of the students that I work with want um, aspire to. And then looking up, you know, what are the demographics of the people that work at NASA? And you can find a lot of that information online. And so I think that that helps them kind of see the issues of like, wow, this isn't this isn't super equitable. This isn't, this is a very, and especially at UC Irvine, right? Because we have a pretty diverse undergraduate student body. And so then for them to see, um, right, there's not very many people of Latino or Latina backgrounds or especially in the higher up positions. So trying to get them to think a little bit more about it is, is what I'm working towards, but it's hard because I don't want as much as I would love to have a class on like diversity and inclusion in engineering, I also don't want that because um, that makes it seem like it's this extra thing that it's not re- relevant to every single class that people are taking. Um, so that would be, yeah, my my advice is to just add one extra problem onto a homework assignment where you ask students to find examples. And and the other thing that I've actually been been thinking about was this this idea of like an asset based approach. So as um, I've been working with my undergraduate, Kevin Fly, who was the one who did the initial analysis on the diversity um, responses. And then I have a graduate student now, Joey Henry, who really pulled it together and we wrote a paper and submitted it to ASCE on, on the same topic. And one of the things that we really started kind of looking at here was that it was very it was more of a deficit minded approach of saying mm-hmm. products that fail to consider diversity. Right. Instead of thinking, are there products out there that are you know really successful that have done a great job of inclusion? Um, and so thinking about from an asset based perspective of like, can we look towards really great examples rather than thinking about things that have failed? Um, so that's something I'm still working on thinking about um, how to integrate that. Interesting. I was listening as you were talking and I wanted to know um, how do you take into consideration the student themselves? So, you know, when we talk about diversity and we talk about equity and inclusion, actually, even more broadly, if we went into the objective subjective type thing. So we know engineering design is thought to be objective, but the engineer is not right. And so you have all these students with their different interests and their different experiences. How do you, as you even think about designing these assessments or designing these assignments, how do you do you take into consideration the fact that these students have these different expectations, experiences, whatever? Or is it just, yeah, how do you design assessment around these ideas? Yeah, that's, a again, a really good thing to think about and hard thing to think about. The way that I've been trying to really think about the uniqueness of all my students is to give more options. So um, it's not possible with every single assignment or every single assessment, but to let them know, right, like, I think you all have really good ideas and I want to learn from you, too. And you all have different experiences or or see different areas that need engineering solutions, right? And so one of the things that I always make sure I have in every one of my classes is some sort of open-ended project where the students get to choose what they want to, to focus their energy on or to focus their project on. In a class that I'm teaching this quarter, today's the first day, um, is an introduction to engineering computation. So it's an introduction to MATLAB, and I have them do 
one group assignment where I, I tell them they need to, you know, choose a topic that they want to look at. And so they have to find a data set or make a data set and do some plotting of those data and write a little report on it. Um, and a lot of them struggle with this, like, well, what should it be on? Right. And I say it can be on whatever you want. Right. Whatever you find interesting and what your group thinks is interesting. I give them some ideas like maybe it should be about um, maybe you want it to be about sustainability. Maybe you want it to be about uh, education. Right. So it's it's near the end of the quarter that they work on this assignment. And so um, that's one way. Right. Where they get to think about, okay, I want what do I want to spend a little time analyzing a little bit of data and they get to choose with, with a small group, but it's still something where they get to figure out where they wanted to draw some attention to. And then in terms of assessment, this, I think this is not an assignment based question for me. It's more of like a, a broader picture. And so I know you both talked with Ruth Strebler and Carl Smith about the um, content assessment and pedagogy alignment framework, um, which I love and I try to use all the time. Um, and so thinking about like, well, what are the the pieces that are most important and stressing those? And so one of the things that I've been trying to tell them is like, I care about my students as people first, right? But first, before like, how you're going to perform in my class, right? I think that's something I try to tell them. And so as I've been working through that of like, well, if I really believe that, how can I show them that? And so um, you know, telling students, right, that you as a person matter the most. And and so that's why I I drop, you know, one homework without penalty. And I, I allow them to, I'm actually just starting this, but I'm allowing them to make corrections if they um, get below a certain threshold on um, on a quiz and and just saying, you know, maybe quizzes aren't your your strength. And so that's why I have all these other ways for you to demonstrate your your knowledge. And so that's how I've been. I've been trying to. And I mean, this is constant, constantly evolving. And I'm still learning all the time about how to make it better for all students. I, I struggle because I would love to be a lot more personal with my with my assessments and everything. Um, knowing that I have, you know, really unique students, every student is unique and it gets harder though with big classes. So I teach classes that are generally, um, my undergrad classes are usually between 150 and 250 students and it's hard to make sure that I'm, I'm honoring kind of each, each student. So I try to do it through things like that where I say, um, you know, if you need to miss a class, right? Like that's okay. That's why I have this flexibility. I think that's really what has kind of the pandemic has really shown me is this flexibility. I want to maintain that because I think that it benefited certain students a lot to know that, you know, it's okay for them to miss class if they have something come up and for them to make that judgment of what's important in their lives and me not having to be like the deciding factor if that's if that's important enough, right, to miss class. Um, of course, I'm also a believer that things like attending class is really important. Learning is social and you need, you need the deliberate distributed practice. And so I tell them that as well. Right. But then at the same time, like their well-being is is more important than the class. It's just it's just is what I how I feel about it. So I hope that that helps answer your question. Sure. You mentioned some of the aspects in particular, giving more uh, decision power to the students about why they might need to attend the class or not. And that's being part as part of the experience going through the pandemic. 
And we talked to quite a few of our guests about their experiences of shifting to online teaching during the initial stages. And if there were some of their lessons that they learned and some of the things that they taken into back, you know, if you are back to face to face or maybe in some form of the hybrid or whatnot, if there are a couple of the things that really stood out for you that you're now continuing to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that my teaching has forever changed because of the pandemic. And I, I think that that's a good thing. Um, I mean, I think there's some things that are hard and un, like annoying, right? It's it's hard and annoying to set up a separate Zoom call and make sure those students are engaged too and paying attention to the people in the room. Um, so we are back in person. We got back in person at the beginning of February. So we were virtual for the first part of um, winter quarter and now we're, we're in person. And this quarter is you know, slated to be fully in person. Our mask requirement was just lifted. And, um, and so it's, yeah, it feels a little different, but I think, you know, something that I saw at the very, very beginning of the pandemic was that a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but I saw like some groups of people, especially people with disabilities say, what, these were the accommodations we've been asking for. Mm -hmm. And now you, you can, you make them and it's fine, but why wasn't it okay earlier? And I like haven't been able to stop thinking about that. Like some students, it's really maybe hard for them to get to campus. Then maybe they have, I don't know what, what it could be all sorts of things, right? I'm thinking about, you know, myself and I, I, I struggle with migraines. And sometimes if I had a migraine, I would want to probably stay home and watch the, the recording. And I don't want to have to be the person that like says, Oh, is it that bad? Right. Um, or, you know, students that have, people at home that are more immunocompromised, right? I don't want to have to, to tell students what I think is, is most important for them. They have to be able to make those decisions. And so I, I think that I will forever in the future record my classes um, and post them and tell students, you know, especially if you're sick, right? If you're, if you have a cold or something, please don't come, right? Like I really don't want you to come. I want that option to be there. And so I think that's one thing that will, will forever be changed about my class. Although, you know, I, I'm really excited to be back in person. I, I like making eye contact with people, even now on this call, right? We, we have, we can see each other's faces, but like real eye contact is not happening because I can't look at the camera and see you, right? And so, that was something I remember thinking when I first got back in person last quarter of like, wow, I can make eye contact with people. And so I think that there's a lot of benefits to being in person. And so what I've been thinking about is like, well, what's why would students want to come and making sure that I try my best to design the classroom and the time we're together worthwhile of their attendance. Right. I don't want it to be like a threat. I want them to think, oh, if I come, that's going to be a good experience where I get to sit with people and talk with people like that's the benefit of being in person. If it was if it was just me presenting concepts and demonstrating on MATLAB, then then, yeah, we could all just remain on Zoom. But what is the benefit for us being together? And so that's what, something I've been thinking about even more now that it feels like it needs to be there needs to be a reason why they want to come to the classroom and they need to be able to see that benefit. And maybe some of them won't. Um, that's something I've been thinking a lot about and and going through even like prioritization of stuff. I went through this right during the pandemic. You're like, nothing matters except for my health. Right. Especially at the beginning. Um, but which I still think is true. Right. But then, of course, there's still like the desire to um, there's a balance between 
wanting to be become an engineer, wanting to be a good educator, right? Like I still want to work and I love my job and wanting to be able to connect with students and, and do the work is still really important to me. And so finding that balance of like, well, what work is, is more important to me that I'm, you know, that I'm willing to work on it, even despite all the crazy things that are going on that are really hard um, and distracting and emotional, right? There's a lot of that happening still um, every day that we're seeing things happening in the news that can really shake me and, and make it hard for me to do, do my work. So I think that those things will definitely continue um, moving forward. Thank you. I was thinking about a question we tend to ask our guests is, what were the things about being online? I feel like if you're in if you're in the face-to-face camp, the community is split. You have the people who are firmly planted in the face-to-face camp. This is awesome. This is great. Why would we do anything different? And then you have the people in the online learning or remote learning camp that says, we've been doing this for years. It's great. you know. And then COVID, the pandemic has shoved everybody into that online space. Some people found surprises of, oh, I didn't know I could do this thing in my class or my students truly enjoy this thing. I want to keep it with me as I move forward back into the face-to-face space. And I wanted to ask you, were there anything that you came across as you were teaching remotely that now that you're back face-to-face, you enjoy being face-to-face and having that, you know, interaction in the classroom? Are there things that you're thinking, hey, I could incorporate this in my face-to-face class session moving forward? Yeah, I think that the, like, ability to ask questions throughout on Zoom, right, the chat feature, I think a lot of people have found has been really helpful where some students will never feel comfortable raising their hand and asking a question out loud. And and that's OK. And so I think that having some sort of chat feature where students can pose questions will be something I will always want to include. So I'm going to I'm planning on using poll everywhere for that feature where students can can go onto that poll and and ask a question. I think that I can do that live. I know that. So so in my class, I'm teaching MATLAB. And so I'm going to require students to bring their computers. And so students can join the Zoom call from their computers still, even if they're in person, right? And they can use the chat feature in that way and and continue asking questions. So I think that that's something that's really helpful. The other thing that I used for the first time during the pandemic, which I know is something people use in person, but really helped in the virtual environment was using learning assistants. And so those are undergrad students that have taken the class before. Um, and so I hire every single learning assistant that applies that works in my schedule, works with the scheduling, right? So that they can attend classes and attend discussions and they can come to our instructional team meeting. And that's been great because like I have like 15 learning assistants for a class of 150. And so there's just a lot more touch points where they can ask questions of the learning assistants and get that support. And so that's something I like I would put people into breakout rooms, which I thought was awesome. I think that oftentimes they you know, I heard a lot from the learning assistants, right? The students would turn their cameras on when they were in the breakout rooms with the learning assistants and they'd chat and then would come back and all the cameras would be off. Right. Except for my learning assistants would keep their cameras on, which I appreciated so I could pretend I was teaching to people. Um, and so that was something I used for the first time in the, in the during the pandemic. And I will certainly continue to use because I think that as much as I like to think that I'm an approachable person just like because I'm a professor and I have that title it puts that um puts a puts some distance between me and the students and so I like the the way that I can connect and learn what what students might need or 
um, what's going on through the learning assistants and through the teaching assistants too. So, and that also is nice for me because the, the one hour a week that I meet with my, my instructional team, my learning assistants and my teaching assistants is a way for me to get to still know some students, like kind of more on a personal basis because um, it's a small group. And so that's been, that's been something I've been enjoying and will, will continue to use. So do you feel like in a way online connection with some of the students was a little bit easier because you mentioned that you were able to get to know some of the students rather than having a classroom where maybe somebody perhaps might be get kind of lost in the in the group? Yeah, I think that there is a little way of kind of leveling things if it's virtual, if it's everyone was kind of having the same experience. So I think so. I think that there were ways for students to engage that they might not have been if they were in person. But I think that those ways, like via Zoom, are also possible in person. And so that's what I'm, I'm hoping to be able to to take with me, I guess. I still do think that in person, like I'm looking forward to doing that again with a big class. So my last classes were pretty small um, this past quarter, but now with this big class being in person again, I think that I'm looking forward to it, but with a lot of those affordances that that the virtual environment kind of provided I want to keep those in place because I want I want students to I think that one of the things that I think about a lot is like my class is not their highest priority I don't think ever right like it I mean I think the journey of earning their engineering degrees is a big priority but like any individual class they're taking usually like four or five classes they've got you know, extracurriculars they've got family to think about, they have fun to think about, right? And so I I just want it to be a space where they can they can be they can learn and they can have a good experience. I don't want it to be like a super stressful experience. So yeah, I don't know that I'm really answering the question about like the pandemic effect, but yeah. No, no, I think it's helpful. It's also kind of made me think about going back to conversation about teaching diversity, you know, and specifically if you think about engineering disciplines, made me wonder also about two different levels of it. You know, one that you mentioned is when we think about product design and how diversity fits in that part, part of the design. And another thing that comes to mind is, you know, I'm going back to your quote when you said when, you know, when can we just focus and start thinking about STEM problems and free our minds from thoughts of needing to prove the abilities when others doubt their place and simply think about the science and engineering. And I guess from the perspective of the instructor, engineering instructor, do you need to address this other part of diversity that maybe is more related to the students and their own perception and you know, and, and I can say I struggle a lot with the imposter syndrome and this idea of belonging to a particular community and and things of that nature. Is that a responsibility of engineering constructor? How would you approach that? Because I feel like that could be more of a sensitive uh, sport for many. Or perhaps it's more something that should be the level of administration in the school. So I don't know if you have um, any advice about that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's the responsibility of the instructor to create an environment where those students feel seen, that they feel that they can be engineers, that they can be part of the community. I was part of a, I was part of some sort of, 
I was at like some sort of meeting where someone someone said, you know, students, there's so much support, right? There's all these organizations that they can be a part of that are specific depending on, you know, the, what they identify with, right? We have really active um, SHIP chapter here, which is the Society for, of Hispanic and Professional Engineers. We have NSBE, the National Society for Black Engineers. We have, you know, um, all sorts of offices. And they're like, well, how, how could these students not succeed with all this support? And it was, and the response was, but like if they are even if they get that support outside the classroom, the messages they get inside the classroom is that they don't matter. Um, not that they don't matter, but maybe. Right. They might even get that message or that they don't belong. And so I do think that it is the responsibility of instructors to help students see themselves as engineers and and think that there are ways that we can do that that are really important. And so I I think a lot about like ways that we can do that. So I'm, I'm trying to like gather my thoughts a little bit. Um yeah, so thinking about like, you know, what's your place in engineering? I've been trying to do more of this, right? Like adm- telling students what I've been through, right? I think that's one thing that's really helpful is um, letting students know. I think a lot of times students think professors, you know, they don't ever not know something or they, um, you know, they're this just an all-knowing being. And so that's something I talk a lot about with my students where it's like, well, I don't know that answer. Like we'll have to d- figure it out together or um, I'll look it up and make sure to get back to you. Um, or I tell them things about like, well, this is, this was a really hard concept for me to learn, right? Um, it, when I'm, when I'm working through some of the material that I'm introducing or, um, right, like giving them that perspective that, that I often, you know, that I also struggle with it. Yeah. So I do, I'm trying to think about other ways that maybe I think this could be done. I heard, I've heard people say things like, oh, I don't have to update my class because fluid dynamics doesn't change, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that for me is really frustrating to hear because it's like, yeah, but the people doing the fluid dynamics might change. Or maybe like the people that we've highlighted, right? Oftentimes when we think about the history of engineering, it's almost all men that we talk about of like, this formula is named after a, a man and, and right, this like approach or, um, is named after a man, right? And so even like small things like that, or the textbook that we select, is it by men? And and so thinking about like, how can we make an effort to help these students feel like they belong in engineering? And I think a way to do that would be to, to find an example of an engineer, you know, that you admire and like seeing how can you can you find an example of an engineer maybe that that looks like you that has a similar pathway or a similar background um, could be a way to help students really see themselves belonging in their classroom. Um, I'm thinking about belonging a, a lot more recently also because I'm part of a, a grant that we've we've called ourselves the You Belong Collaborative. Um, and that effort is started. It's it's um, at the University of Pittsburgh where the, the main PIs are and then um, Purdue um, working with Allison Godwin and then we they selected UCI because of the really diverse students. And so we're, we're, we're testing the intervention in different contexts. So the intervention is, is about belonging and it's about how, helping students see why they might belong or that the fact that they feel sometimes that they don't is normal or that they feel like this is really hard. Should I stay in engineering? Um, that that's a normal thing that might happen and and ways to help support them and and seeing how do you move through those feelings? What might might be ways that you can, um, you know, move past that and continue on your your journey to be an engineer. And so, yeah, so I think that we as instructors do need to help our students see themselves in engineering. 
And so, yeah, that's that's kind of my my thought. I think there's a lot of concern. Right. So I think a lot about um, pathways to faculty positions. And so graduate education doesn't really introduce us to that. Right. As even going through a Ph.D. program, right, like the teaching aspect and preparation to being an instructor was pretty limited. And so I still see that in a lot of graduate education and, and faculty. Right. We're we're given so much freedom in our classrooms that, you know, we don't have to necessarily do professional development on like, how can I make my classroom inclusive? That's encouraged. And it's it's seen as maybe like a positive thing, but it's not it's not really what's going to get you tenure. And so I think that that misalignment is also still a big problem. And so even though I believe firmly, right, like that is the responsibility of instructors to really help make their students see themselves as engineers and help them um, develop that identity. It's it's hard to expect that. It's hard to think of like, how could that actually happen? Um, there's lots of different forces at play. I was thinking about this idea of building community and trust in engineering classes along the lines of the belonging kind of where you are right now. And you have really large classes, or I mean, some people will say that's small compared to their 600 level or whatever. How do you propose, what are things one can do in large classes to build trust among their students, to demonstrate that I care to help students in building these communities? Because I mean, when they leave your class, if it's an intro class, these are still some of the students that they will be engaging with towards the end of their degrees. How do you create a relationship rich, if you will, classroom? Yeah, so that's something I, I've been working towards as well. And I think that um, creating small groups has been the way that I've approached that. So especially with like breakout rooms, I've been taking, I've been like thinking, okay, how can I make this feel like you're in a smaller classroom or seeing similar faces? And so um, I do assign a group project and I do that in part because I want them to at least like know two other, two or three other people in the classroom mm -hmm. that they have to meet with the quarter. And so the beginning of the quarter, I ask, I, I ask them a few questions and I ask them about their identity. Like, do they identify as any of these um, groups? So I ask if they're, you know, if they identify as a woman, if they identify as Latinx, um, if they identify as black. And so I ask them these questions and then also um, what sort of interest do they have? Are they really interested in sustainability? And that's sort of the idea of maybe that's what they want to do for their group project. And so I put them in groups and this is important. It's small with um, first year students, especially to try. I try to like not have any minoritized individual on a team by themselves with two non minoritized students. And that's that's something that apparently um, has been shown, especially to be important early on. But then later in in engineering careers, protecting students like that can actually give them a false sense of what it might be like to be in the field because the field is not that inclusive um, or diverse yet, hopefully yet. <laughs> But yeah, so creating these groups and trying to be really careful with how I create them and then having those be consistent throughout the quarter. And so I have students in groups of three to four. And then I had, you know, I didn't have however many learning assistants that would require, but I had learning assistants where then two or three small groups would be with the same learning assistant. So the breakout room, right, they'd be assigned a number. So you're breakout room three and that breakout room always has the same learning assistant in it. And so my goal there was hopefully they would see the same like 10 to 12 students during the breakout sessions, which happened two times a class. 
And so they would see the same folks every time. And so that that idea was to like just have it be a little bit more like you're going to meet these people. You're going to see these people over and over rather than a random assignment um, breakout room every time. And so what I would do is I would just have the students Right. They would be assigned group three. And I would say allow students to manually select the breakout rooms and then they have to click, OK, join breakout room three. So I'm planning on doing something similar um, in my class now that it's in person. I've been thinking about this, right? Like now that it's in person, I can't just like see their little name pop up on Zoom. So that was actually something that was really nice about Zoom. I forgot to mention that being able to address people by their name because it just showed up on on like the Zoom screen. Um, so I'm planning on having them make like little name placards that they have in front of them during class so that I can see their names, but then also putting them in groups and having them sit at the same the same area of the classroom every week and with a learning assistant kind of dedicated to that small group. And I think that that helps even with the learning assistants that they get to know those students a little bit better as well. So I do quite a lot of that sort of thing. The other thing that I'm planning on continuing See, now I'm like thinking of all these other things that I forgot to mention. One thing that I did in my class um, virtually was I always gave a break in the middle because sitting in front of a computer and sitting at a screen, can, I think, is a lot for 80 minutes. And so um, I would give a five minute break where I said, turn off your camera, go stretch, go get a glass of water, right? Do something. I'm planning on continuing that. Although I don't think people, I, I don't know that I necessarily want people to leave the classroom, but well, I guess we'll see if people need to use the restroom. But um, having that be kind of like a social five minutes of saying like, okay, I'm going to give you five minutes, like, and maybe give a prompt of like what you sh- might, if you're looking for something to talk about with your neighbors, here's a prompt. But just a little reprieve in the middle of class has been something I think was really helpful, just like stepping away, stretching, um, something like that. So I'm planning on keeping that as well. Question I have also if, you know, if you, for example, thinking about professional development for engineering constructors, or like I said, you know, focusing on the graduate students who will become an engineering constructor soon. What are some of the important things that should not be missed when we're educating future instructors that perhaps, you know, relate to diversity that, that you think we really should keep in mind? Yeah, I, I have lots of thoughts on this, <laughs> but I think some of the things, right, I think like a teaching experience is just essential. I, um, and, and also like just ha- letting them have quite a lot of leeway in it and really getting to design an experience. So I think there's ways to do that. Um, that might be having every single student be in charge right, of a class fully is probably not possible, but something that I think students could do is develop a syllabus, right? And really think about like, what would be my grading criteria? This is something that I do in, in my, I teach a graduate level class on engineering teaching where I have them do this and I have them think about how would they evaluate students? How are they going to know what students know? How can they think about um, inclusion and diversity in their classroom? And and I, I actually require that they come up with some sort of assignment related to diversity and inclusion um, and some other assignment related to sustainability. Those are two things that I've been really like just saying, I, I don't care how you integrate this, but it has to be at least one thing that you do in your class related to these topics. Um, and so I think that a teaching experience is really important for future instructors. Um, and then the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about is mentoring and like creating a research group, um, especially, I guess, at, at research focused institutions. But even at non-research focused, I think how to mentor students is something I was not really given any training on or um, 
understanding, right? And you often think to, like, we talk about teaching as taught, I think mentoring as, as mentored, right, is something that certainly comes up and, and really thinking, how can we, how can we help our graduate students or future faculty, um, gain these skills so that they can, they can do a good job of, with it moving forward? Um, so those are two areas I think would be really crucial. Um, I think we talked about it already, but maybe it's kind of in summary. Going back to the instructors who are trying to make some changes, say that this semester thinking about the summer or the fall, what are the one or two things you feel like that they should do? Yeah, I think like letting students know that they, they care about the students. I think that's one thing I would encourage people, even if I think I truly think all instructors care about the students. I don't think anyone really has like that hope that their students are going to fail or anything like that. I think everyone really wants their students to succeed. And I think telling your students that can make a big difference of saying, I really want you to succeed. And here's some ways that you could. What are some ways um, that you think that students, what are some ways that you could help them um, let them know that they matter? Right. Um, That doesn't even have to go into any sort of details of like diversity or, or things like that. I think that's really just, you're all human, right? How can we, how can we, so I think that's one thing. Um, and then, right. And even being vulnerable with students and saying like, what was, what was hard for them about the pandemic? What were some areas where they were, were struggling and, um, and being, you know, being transparent. I think that students really respond well to, to that sort of transparency. If they, they see, right. Like this isn't easy for our instructor either. Um, but they're still putting in the work and they're still putting in the, the effort, then that's something that maybe students can also can learn from. Um, and then the other thing is to really just think, what can you learn from your students? I think that that's really helped me a lot of, I, so the beginning of the, when I first started teaching, right? Like that was something I was really, really nervous about. I was like, oh my gosh, these students all think like they, they want, they think that I know everything or that I need to know everything. So I must know everything, right? Like that was, this big stressor. And then going back to the the quote that you, you talked about at the beginning was this burden of like being perfect. Right. And especially as a young female faculty member, I was thinking about this all the time. It was like this consumed me of like, this is what they're going to think about female engineers is like, because I'm like one of the first female engineering faculty they've had. And I was only the third in my department when I was hired. And so that was something that was like really consuming me a lot of, is like, what, what do they think of, of that? And so, so thinking about, yes, I want to be right. Like I'm the person that designs the learning experience and creates the assessments, right. And, and teaches, right. But, but also how can I, like, what can I learn from my students? And so having some sort of, I just would, I would urge or uh, push people to think like, what's something that you could learn from your students? And maybe like, it could be as like, where do you see, you know, this field in the future, like what sort of changes might be really exciting where they could then envision themselves as as the future engineers, right? Like, what are they going to do? What innovations are they going to bring to the field? And just hearing what like what do they what do our students think about, like the possibilities of the future um, and what engineering might look like and what what engineers could do to contribute. So I think, yeah, making sure students know that you care about them and then also thinking, what could I learn from them? Two things I would encourage people to think about. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you for being with us today. We learned some very insightful things from you, and I'm sure our listeners will too.